The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. It's just a note to say that if you're hearing this, then you are not currently on our patron programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show podcast, you will need to become a patron of the show via the show's homepage at thetudortravelshow.podbean.com. There you will find information relating to various different levels of sponsorship with different perks associated with each. But access to all the usual shows of my podcast in their entirety is included in the entry level, which is just $1 a month. We don't run ads on the podcast, so it is made entirely possible by the support of our patrons. So if you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider becoming one. Now, today we are going to be focusing on one of the most successful and popular monarchs in English history. I am, of course, talking about Elizabeth I. And in fact, we're going to be looking specifically at how Elizabeth used portraiture and miniatures to portray her image and her royal authority. And to help us explore this particular topic, I'm going to be joined today by historian and author Siobhan Clark. Along with her co-author, Linda Collins, they have written a book called Gloriana, Elizabeth I and the Art of Queenship, which was released on the 16th of June here in the UK. Well, image, portraits, well, they're right up my alleyway. And I am fascinated by the cult of the Virgin Queen. So I was delighted to be able to link up with Siobhan on Zoom and explore this topic with her in more detail. Well, my friends, there's no housekeeping for this particular extra special episode. And so we can get straight on with the show. So hello, Siobhan. Welcome back to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Hello, Sarah. And it's lovely to be back again. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're most welcome. Um, I was having a little bit of a chat to you before we started recording and saying, my, 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 you have been busy because it didn't <laughs> seem that long ago since we were talking about your your last book, King and Collector. And, and, and here we are with another book. You are a very busy person, Siobhan. Yes. And um, I was explaining to you that it really is partly because of the pandemic and being at home, having the time to just focus on writing, not being able to go out and and do take tours at Hampton Court Palace. Um, And also because there's two of us working on it, obviously, we're sharing the the work and we both had the time to uh, really concentrate. And it's been great, actually, really pleased. And we, we yeah, we got it. We wrote it quite quickly. 
and got it produced uh, soon after King and Collector. Concentrated time to work. Now there's a rare thing. <laughs> it's amazing what you can get done, isn't it, when there aren't numerous distractions going on? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, um, obviously, I mentioned you've been on the show before. We've just mentioned that. We've just talked a little bit about that. But there may be people tuning in for the first time who haven't caught that episode. So it'd be really great if you could just introduce yourself and tell us about your background and, and why you're interested in this particular subject matter. Yeah. So I've been at Historical Palaces for 20 years. I also uh, lecture for for various organisations. And with my colleague, um, Linda Collins, uh, we both appeared on Secrets of Henry VIII's Palace a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And and she also worked for for HRP. And with using that experience, um, and as a decades really of uh, of working there we um we wrote and published king collector in 2021 which was looking at henry's uh, henry VIII's art collection and really looking at his life through his art mm. we thought it would be an interesting thing to do linda's an art historian and um so and then following up from that um it was actually alison weir who suggested that we then do something on elizabeth using the same format using the the paintings as a gateway um and our publishers liked the idea so it all happened really quite quickly really with with this uh, follow-up well it is a really interesting angle um i'm used to looking at um the lives of great Tudor characters through places but looking at them through their art is absolutely fascinating I really enjoyed our previous conversation so I would urge anybody listening who hasn't tuned in to the previous episode to uh, make sure you do so and I'll put a link in the description so that you can easily locate that episode's dear listeners but for the time being we're talking about the current book and I I did introduce it uh, in my introduction it's called Gloriana Elizabeth I and the Art of Queen Queenship. Uh, maybe you can tell us in a nutshell, Siobhan, what's it all about? What question in particular does it aim to answer? It's just really giving an overview of Elizabeth. And of course, her biography has been done countless times before, but we're doing it through her portrait. So biography using art as a gateway uh, to understand Elizabeth and her image. We're, we're, we're putting the portraits in the context of her life and we're also um, digging a little deeper into the cult of Gloriana and looking at um, actually not just paintings but also having a little look at literature and music and the golden age because that's all wrapped up in in the whole thing of of Gloriana and, uh, and her image. I'm really looking forward to exploring that um, because I find this whole image of the Virgin Queen and how it came about to be particularly interesting. And I'm not sure I've yet had a completely satisfactory answer as to how and when it emerged and who was the brainchild behind it. So I look forward to exploring that a little bit more with you in a moment. Um, but I'm also always interested to find out what kind of research you had to do for a for a book like this? Did you get into all sorts of nooks and crannies, get to see great pieces of art? What what did you do, Siobhan, tell us? Well, we read everything possible uh, that we could get our hands on, primary and secondary sources, looked at the most important portraits of Elizabeth, and then, and it's about picking out these iconic, because obviously we can't cover everything, so we had to um, pick out the most, what we, we felt were the most important, and re- then research each work, 
uh, mindful of how each work would tell some aspect of her of her story. And then the research led us into a, a wider exploration of the of the golden age, as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, and and also having a, a look at some of the courtiers surrounding her and and how they used art as well. It must have been difficult to choose the most some of the most important ones to quote you there, because there are so many images of Elizabeth, aren't there? How did you manage to wheedle them down? Well, there are certain ones that you just can't leave out. You know, mm. you have to put in the Darnley portrait, the Armada, the Ditchley portrait, the Phoenix, the Pelican, uh, portrait of Elizabeth as a princess. So there, there are portraits that just really stand out that people would be surprised if they weren't there. Um, but one, one of the you, you asked me earlier about when we were doing the research, were there any surprises? I can't really say that I was surprised about Elizabeth, perhaps because I'd done so much research about her anyway. Mm. So, but one of the things that surprised me actually was about Robert Dudley, um, because I didn't realise that he was such an ardent patron and that he was the greatest collector in England. That you know, he owned two hundred paintings and collected uh, paintings of foreign princes. Uh, so for example, Catherine de' Medici sent him a portrait of her son, the Duke of Anjou, who would later become his rival. He had pictures of all his family, and interestingly, not his executed forebears, mm -hmm. but people like Sir Philip Sidney, his nephew. And then, and he set a trend amongst courtiers to have references to themselves in their pictures of the Queen. And so this is quite important because you often see Elizabeth holding a fan or some kind of accessory. And these accessories are usually gifted to her by the patron. So therefore those in the know would, would understand when they look at the painting, they would be able to understand the relationship between the patron and the Queen. So he, he started that trend. Um, but uh, what I found quite amusing was that the most frequent subject of Leicester's commissions was himself. Um, you know, you, you, you expect that he commissioned a lot of Elizabeth, but he commissioned at least 20 of himself, which was so unusual. Even among foreign rulers, you know, they didn't usually have that many paintings. So he was also very interested in his image and, and how it could be used you know to further his cause to marry the queen and and he also did really cheeky things like commission portraits of them both uh, to be hung side by side as if they were a couple which i think is quite is quite funny it is quite funny isn't it um i i remember coming across that a little bit uh, where i think i was speaking to professor sue doran and we were talking about some of the art at kenilworth castle so i imagine a lot of those 200 paintings that you mentioned would have adorned the walls at Kenilworth and and that particular pair there was a particular pair of paintings I think that he That's had commissioned for Elizabeth's visit is that right? That is correct yeah yeah he did yeah and and hung together as I said as if as if they were a couple so a, a really uh, cheeky cheeky yes. thing to do. Um, yeah, and and then of course, and also gave him the opportunity to show off his fine clothing in the in the paintings and his physique, and you know, as I say, further his cause 
uh, to be a suitable candidate for the Queen's hand. Mm, he really did everything he could, didn't he? Uh, to no avail, of course. But um, anyway, let's focus our attention on Elizabeth and because she seemed to me to be a woman who knew how to marshal her image and the importance of image and propaganda. But I've often wondered where that where where that came from, where that um, uh, sort of nous to, yeah. to do that came from. What do you think? Where do you think that originated for, or how did it originate for Elizabeth? So she had the examples of both her father and her grandfather, Henry VII, um, which is, again, a, maybe a little bit surprising. Um, but then when you dig down, you find that Henry VII, although well known as a miser, he spent a lot of money on clothes after he became king. And he knew that um, royal image making you know, was vital. So he was prepared to pay for tapestries and fine palaces. Um, he would use artists, uh, poets and historians to project himself as the legitimate king of England. So, so image making uh, was vital and he really understood that, that the illusion of power and wealth was was a necessary ingredient really and so therefore he was prepared to spend and then his son henry the eighth elizabeth's father spends even more money on the most magnificent court that england had ever seen with the palaces the tapestries the art because he's he's a rival to uh, european rulers and with his patronage, he will bring European artists into England. The Renaissance really sort of properly arrives. And then he has the genius, Hans Holbein, who, who creates mm. that iconic image of Henry, you know, the ultimate royal image making. So, um, so she didn't have to look very far for examples of royal image making. And do you think that the Tudors were the first kind of royal house that had all of these things come together at once, which almost made yeah. it a perfect sort of breeding ground for creating royal propaganda through portraiture. Would that be fair to say? I think so. Because of the Renaissance arriving, because of Holbein, uh, Henry, Henry VIII bringing in these really talented people. Uh, previous medieval kings hadn't really used art like that before. You know, they commissioned paintings for diplomatic reasons, such as marriage treaties, that kind of thing. Artists were not highly regarded. They were treated as artisans. Um, even in the reign of Henry VIII, they're still not terribly well paid. I mean, Hans Holbein, famously, he only earned £30 a year. Mm -hmm. um, but they are starting to get more, more recognition um, and, and becoming popular, not, not just with the royal family, but with the nobility. And hence, we, we have all these wonderful paintings that are left to us of Hans Holbein is able to show us the Tudor court. Mm, aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky? Um, so we, you talked before, Siobhan, about sim, some of the symbols. We started to touch on those. Um, and there are so many symbols in Tudor art. And I love being able to try and make sense of them. Sometimes not very successfully, I have to say. But um, maybe you could talk to us about some of the more common symbols that we see associated with Elizabeth. So that if anybody wants to stand in front of an, a piece of art that depicts Elizabeth, they might be able to pick out some new things and make some sense of what they're seeing. Yes, of course. Yeah. Well, the most obvious and the clearest uh, symbol is sim it's very simple. Pearls. 
uh, you always see Elizabeth wearing pearls. They symbolize chastity. They connect her to Cynthia, who was a Greek goddess of the moon, who was a virgin. Um, and this idea is also promoted through literature. Uh, to give you an example, Sir Walter Raleigh um, published a long poem that he wrote in, in the 1580s, The Ocean's Love to Cynthia. And, and in that, he compares Elizabeth to the moon, to this moon goddess. Um, Elizabeth was also associated, associated with Minerva, the classic virgin goddess of war. Minerva appears a lot in, in actually in both Tudor and Stuart propaganda because she's someone who depicts uh, purity and wisdom, but she's also a fighter, uh, a, a fighter for just causes. Although it's important to say that Elizabeth, although prepared for war, she always preferred peace. And you will sometimes see um, an olive, an olive leaf, olive branches um, in her paintings, in the works which symbolise peace. Another important symbol is the, the sieve or sieve, a mm. uh, symbol of virginity and purity. And that that goes back to Roman times. And there, uh, there was a whole series of portraits on Elizabeth, the sieve portraits, which uh, celebrate her virginity. And they they um, allude to Elizabeth as, as a Roman vestal virgin. And then um, flowers and fruit, if you see them, that represents youth and fertility. That's particularly evident in the Hamden portrait, which when Elizabeth was still quite young and it was painted um, to really for the European marriage market. And then if you see the crown and scepter, clearly they're indicating monarchy and the body and the body politic. So as, as opposed to her, her human body. Um, and then the globe represents imperial ambitions. You might sometimes see the sword of state for justice. Sometimes you see bright skies and storm clouds, um, particularly in the Armada portrait. Mm. Um, and that represents, um, of course, famously, you know, the Armada were wrecked by storms. But also, it also appears in the Ditchley portrait. The bright skies, meaning Elizabeth bringing light and storm clouds, uh, meaning that, you know, the, the, the queen can control, almost she can control nature. And in the Ditchley portrait, there's a, there's a caption that says she, she um, gives but does not expect, she can but does not take revenge. So it's alluding to this sort of aspect uh, of the queen. Uh, where you see black and white, and she often does pose in wearing black and white, those are the colours of chastity and constancy. Ah. Tudor, yeah, yeah. The Tudor rose obviously refers to the Tudor dynasty, but the rose also has religious connotations. It was the medieval symbol of the Virgin Mary. Yeah. Yeah. And then you might see jewels like the pelican, mm -hmm. favourite jewel used to portray her motherly love for her subjects, or the phoenix, the myth mythological bird, which resurrects, it's, it's a symbol of endurance and eternal life. It's also a symbol of her uniqueness, because only one phoenix can live at a time. Then there's the ermine, of course, which, comes to, which is a status symbol uh, restricted to royalty and higher nobility. But again, purity keeps coming up again and again because the ermine was also very pure. And the, <laughs> there was a legend that said it would rather die than soil its pure white coat. Um, gloves represent elegance. 
And another little symbol to look out for is an armillary sphere, uh, which is a celestial globe. And they represent uh, the study of, of the movements of the planets. And it also represents wisdom. And it could be a symbol of a good relationship between Elizabeth and her courtiers. Her mother, Anne Boleyn, had drawn a sphere in her book of hours. So it's a common, um, a common interpretation of the sphere is to refer to the passing of time and the quality of constancy. So that, so there's a good few ideas um, that people can look out for. Wow, there is. I, I mean, that is a rich territory indeed. <laughs> There's plenty for us to go on there. You've been listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. The remainder of this episode is available to patrons only. To become a patron of the show, head over to my Podbean homepage and you can find the Become a Patron button in the top right-hand corner. Alternatively, you can find a direct link to become a patron in the text associated with this podcast. Thanks for listening, my friends, and I'll see you in the Tudor Sphere again soon. Thank you for tuning in to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like and rate this podcast so we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, it's happy time travelling.